This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. We're going to be talking about uh, money management items today, things related to the markets, investing, and related topics. Uh, we're going to be covering, well, what happened in the market this past week, uh, a number of these economic reports that came out. We'll be uh, considering what some folks think is going to be going forward in the markets this uh, in the near term. And I've got a piece not going to be real long, but I want to try and put together for you all what, uh, you know, we've got the supply-demand issues, inventory drawdowns, shipping delays, costs, manufacturing bottlenecks. How's all that uh, equate with inflation? So I'm going to try and uh, put that in American so it does, <laughs> we don't get too far carried away with a lot of uh, jargon and minutiae. So let's have at it. Right now, uh, as of yesterday, the Dow closed uh, at 35,208. That was higher by 144 points. S&P ended the day at 4436. NASDAQ, uh, that was off a little bit yesterday. It was at 14,835. Russell 2000 ended the week at 2247. Gold settled lower at 1763 an ounce. Silver also lower. It was at 2433 an ounce. Crude at 68.56 was low, was uh, down for the week. The 10-year Treasury actually came up week over week. It's at 1.30%. And soft white wheat ticked up to 9.18 a bushel. So this week we had all-time highs. Uh, we had a hat trick of highs, if you will. We had the Dow and the S&P setting a high yesterday. And on Thursday was the NASDAQ. And yet... August does tend to be the slowest month of the year for the markets. I look at it as uh, what I think of as a porpoise market. It goes up a little bit, down a little bit, but it's still going forward. Now, the S&P, as of yesterday, has gained 18.1%. That's total return. In other words, dividends included. And it's gained at least 15% for the year in 13 of the last 25 years. Now, before you start thinking that that's normal, it's not normal. It's just very good. So, uh, you know, Wednesday, though, here we go with the headline thing, right? The S&P dropped after uh, a Fed governor, uh, Richard Clarita. He said the bank was on track to begin raising interest rates in, wait for it, 2023, with a possible taper announcement later this year. <laughs> what happened? Well, of course, the S&P dropped because that's happening two years out from now. Remember, traders work differently than investors. That's why you can't get caught up in these headline things. You know, and, and this, uh, there was a concern, that's a word that they use in the markets a lot for when they don't know what else to say, about slowing growth. And that caused a drop in the 10-year uh, treasury on Monday. It went down as low as 1.15%. Now, yesterday... It jumped up, and I use that term advisedly in 10-year Treasury terms, it jumped up to 1.3%, which is a pretty good pop in those kinds of issues. And, you know, they said the reason that it dropped Monday, well, the manufacturing sector expanded at a slower pace than a month ago. What? Month? That's nothing. You can't. We're back to the headlines, folks. I'm sorry. You know, this is why you can't pay attention to that kind of junk. Yeah. Here, on a, on a bigger 
how would I say, a bigger picture, third quarter earnings are estimated to go almost 30% higher than from uh, the quarter a year ago. And according to Refinitiv, who provided that other data, they're saying too that in the fourth quarter, we're seeing gains of 21.2%. Not exactly chopped liver, is it? So, oh, and just uh, for what it's worth, uh, Simon Property, which owns some shopping centers in and around Washington State, among other places, that company uh, jumped 2%. They said sales are bouncing back to pre-pandemic levels. They're up 80% from a year ago, and they reported, to quote them, a relatively high occupancy rate. Remember when they said there's not going to be any more shopping centers? Well, perhaps repurposing is what's going on. We saw bank shares jump up uh, as the interest rates rose on Friday. Uh, that's why, excuse me, why they did that is because their profitability uh, looks better. They can make more money off loans and what have you. Uh, industrials, or the retailers, the energy shares gained a little bit uh, because the jobs report, which we'll talk about here in a little while, uh, soothed concerns. You like that? Soothed concerns about the economic outlook. Now, those defensive issues like utilities and healthcare companies, they were lower. See, as I was saying about that, you know, responding to the headlines, please understand that emotions, emotions, that's your biggest enemy of a long-term investor. See, uh, yesterday, Friday, the big tech shares were generally lower as the jump in interest rates caused the traders, although they say in the news releases, investors, Trust me, they're not talking about you and me. That's their code for traders. And again, traders aren't bad people. It's just they, they come at it differently. And most of the news, most of these bits you hear from the talking heads are oriented to short-term investors. So if you're one of those, you understand that. If you're not, please try to understand it and keep your emotions out of the game. These guys uh, move back into the stocks they think could benefit now from faster growth after having sold um, the big techs. See, many techs have, well, rather rapid growth assumptions built into the prices. And they drop because the higher interest rates can also expose their valuations. Because as interest rates go up, what's called the present value of all the money that they have, and they do have a lot just sitting on the shelf somewhere, uh, well, it goes down. The higher the rates go, the lower the present value of that future stream of earnings. Now, that future stream of earnings isn't going to be hit by this. Again, it's kind of like Mr. Clarita's comment about 2023. That's not today. That's not tomorrow. That's not even in six months. But the selling now is a knee-jerk response to what might be, operative term, a long-term issue. And one just last kind of, (laughs) for what it's worth note, GE uh, completed... It's previously announced one for eight reverse stock split and is now trading on a post-split basis. Now, what the heck does that mean, reverse split? Well, if you had 100 shares of the quote-unquote old GE, you will now receive 12 new shares plus some cash. And if you look at the, the, the price for GE, the, co- the current stock price, you go, holy crow, I really hit it out of the park this week. No, because if you multiply the new number of shares times the price per share, you'll find that it's pretty dang close to the same value that you had prior to the uh, uh, reverse split going coming into effect. 
So the uh, net value to you did not change a lot. Now I want to uh, segue over, again, we didn't have much really in the way of market news, and that's because it's August. Uh, we had some earnings and they did okay. Oh, let me add one thing, excuse me, uh, about the emotion thing. You, you're seeing a number of companies, like Clorox, for example. I mean, they just shot it out of the park last year for obvious reasons. Uh, and now with less demand for having to take bleach showers or whatever it was, uh, their, their earnings aren't as good as what they anticipated. So the stock's getting sold. It's going to be hard for them to maintain those earnings. That kind of makes sense. Doesn't mean Clorox is all of a sudden a terrible company, but they aren't likely going to be growing at the same rate. That's the thing that's underlying some of the selling you're seeing in these good companies that are getting the uh, bejesus knocked out of them uh, when they make their earnings announcements. The traders, once again, short-term guys, can, you know, what have you done for me lately? That's that's their mentality. For you as a long-term investor, whole nother look. You need to say, well, okay, the price has changed. Perhaps I need to buy some because it's below where I thought I wanted to buy it before. And what are the fundamentals for this company? What does it look like fundamentally for them compared to others of their type in that sector, et cetera, et cetera? So use that uh, more rational approach than what some talking head said you should buy today because, oh my goodness, it's before it goes higher or lower. Okay. Now we're going to talk uh, quickly, uh, not quickly, we'll talk about some of the economic reports that came out after the break. But I want to add one thing right before the break. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a neutral entity, uh, did some research on this uh, quote-unquote infrastructure bill. They said it would add $256 billion to the deficit. That's according to the University of Pennsylvania Penn Wharton budget model. It found that the, <laughs> the bill would have no quote-unquote significant impact on economic growth. What a surprise. I'm going to look at uh, some of these economic reports that came out this past week and perhaps consider what they all mean. Well, the manufacturing sector did continue to expand in July. That's the most recent period. It was a slightly slower place and pace than we saw in June. Gains continue to be broad-based. 17 of the 18 industries reported growth. I'd call that pretty good. And while new orders remain relatively high, indicating very strong demand for manufacturing goods, it's also clear that the factory sector would be expanding a whole lot more rapidly if it wasn't for many factors basically holding back output. You know, the, the, the uh, comments from the uh, contributors to the survey were generally positive about the future, but they did have some worries about, and again, no new headlines here, but disrupted supply chains, the rapidly rising costs for their input materials, uh, shortages of raw materials from pretty much everywhere, and of course, uh, not being able to fill open positions. And we also saw that uh, inventories by folks, customers, uh, companies typically, continued to shrink a lot in July as well because businesses have continued to rely on the goods they already had in their warehouses due to all the long lead times they have to deal with. Now keep in mind, businesses across the country eventually restocking their shelves, so to speak, 
will not only be a big source of ongoing demand for manufacturing goods, it's always it's also going to be a tailwind for GDP growth and a lot of ripple effects throughout the economy in a good way. Now, the real GDP wasn't released this week, but the real GDP, gross domestic product, basically how the entire economy is doing, is eight-tenths of a percent larger than it was at its peak just prior to all the virus showing up. See, the problem is, however, going back to where we are just prior to that is not exactly a high hurdle, is it? Um, real GDP would have grown much faster if the stupid bug hadn't happened. Well, there's a lot of things in that category, probably. In other words, the economy is smaller today than it would have been in the absence of the bug, which is to say the economy is healing, but it still has a long way to go before we're fully healed. I think what's more interesting is that when we measure the economy in terms of the volume of dollars being spent, that's what they call the nominal GDP, which reflects both the real GDP plus inflation. We're already very close to where we'd be if the bug hadn't happened. Nominal GDP today is not only at a record high, but it's up 3.1% annualized since late 2019. That is a good number for an economy of our size. So if that's true, how is it possible that the total amount of spending is close to normal, but the real GDP is still not so good? Welcome to the I word. Inflation is the difference. Since late 2019, GDP prices are up 2.7%. Yep, and that does include the steep drop in early 2020 during uh, when the bug first showed up. Now, GDP prices have grown at a 6% annual rate in the second quarter this year. That's the fastest pace for any quarter since 1981. So in the near future, we're looking for continued solid economic growth with all this money out there. I mean, it's almost like a duh. It has to happen. You know, inventories cratered in the second quarter as businesses, again, had to dip deeply into their shelves and storerooms to satisfy this strong demand from folks. Because <laughs> customers with all this newly printed money, they're showing up to buy stuff. But uh, businesses, again, whether they're goods or services, are struggling to find workers to produce more. Now, in turn, these depleted inventories mean plenty of room for more production. And as extra unemployment benefits go away, employment will rise, presumably, and spending will come from production, not from fake stimulus. Now, the government's put all kind of stimulus into the economy during the past year or so, and yeah, it looks... Congress may spend an extra spending to or a spending bill or two later in the year, but this additional government spending is going to be spread out over years, unlike the big checks that came out earlier this year. So what that means in American, the effect from the stimulus is going to diminish. Now, in the services sector, economic activity grew for the 14 months in a row. And uh, that's according to the Services ISM report on business. This report, excuse me, it re registered another all-time high, four percentage points higher than the June reading, and eclipsed the previous reading of in May of this year. And by the way, uh, not only is it the 14th month in a row of positive re results in the service se sector, that sector has been up for all but two of the last 138 months. So you hear people sing the blues about the economy or the markets. 
uh, you might tell them to lay down and take a pill because whatever they're whatever they're getting their information is totally bogus. Uh, now, given the record high, it's probably surprising to see that the respondents in this survey were largely negative. Now, there again, the reasons are pretty much what the manufacturing sector is. Rising input costs, supply chain disruptions, not being able to find folks to do the work even after raising wages. That said, the supply chain and labor bottlenecks are not, were not enough to stifle the very strong demand in the sector. Now, another report that came out yesterday, the trade deficit widened to a record. You know, and they play that off like it's a bad thing. Let me explain something. Here's why there's a trade deficit. There's a strong demand by us for foreign goods. So that, that deficit of, uh, what was it? They expected it at $74 billion. It didn't quite come in at that level. Uh, and yet, <laughs> excuse me, the... Uh, Trade deficit was 75.7. That's the largest on record. Imports rose faster than exports. That's how our economy functions. We buy a lot more than what we put out. I mean, we put out a bunch, but relatively, the in, the imports are a whole, whole lot higher. So you look at the total volume of trade, that's imports plus exports, how much businesses, how, excuse me, how much businesses and consumers are interacting across the borders. So that measure went up in June. It's up 33% from a year ago. It sits at an all-time record high. Once again, not doing too badly. <laughs> and then we had the jobs report yesterday, the um, July jobs report. Uh, the Wells Fargo director of rate strategy, Michael Schumacher, had said in term before the uh, report was given, he said jobs range guesses from adding 1.2 million to 350,000 folks. And he said, and I have to agree with this, that just tells you there was very little confidence in the numbers. What happened though is, is that the employers added jobs at the best pace in nearly a year. Unemployment dropped sharply. Uh, we added 943,000 jobs. They're only expecting 845,000. We're back to this, try not to pay too close attention to projections kind of thought. And it's the lowest jobless rate since March of 2020, i.e. the pre-bug era. So the drop in the headline unemployment rate looks even stronger when you consider that the participation rate is now at 61.7. That's the highest level since, again, March 2020. Now, this jobs report also created movement in the bond market. Remember I said earlier in the week it was 1.13? That ain't good. But what happened is, is that yeah, the Treasury continued to jump up and out again yesterday at 1.3 in anticipation of a stronger economy. A stronger economy means more demand, more demand equals higher rates. So uh, James Paulson, he's chief investment strategist for Luthold, he's a pretty smart guy, I think. He added that I think this is really, really good numbers for the market. It's just one number. They tend to be volatile. You got to take it with a grain of salt, perhaps a shaker of salt. But anyway, what it does more than anything is it causes a big shift in the leadership of the market. He said the S&P isn't doing much, but the undertow here has shifted toward the cyclicals and small caps, maybe even the international markets uh, to some degree. Those are more sensitive to the economy and uh, uh, sway more from growth and defensive stocks 
which have been leading for a while. Now, please to understand, employment does not, NOT does not drive the economy, or sales, or earnings for that matter. Jobs follow economic growth, usually with some pretty big long lag time. Now, in turn, the economy itself trails forward-looking stocks. Stocks, unlike economic reports, are what's called the leading indicator. It looks off three to 30 months ahead, and then generally off to the races well in advance, up or down, of any economic data, especially late-lagging labor reports. So, uh, and one thing, too, we need to remember is that I have to take a break. I am very sorry. So we'll be back after the break uh, with some words on from the folks about what they think is coming in the marketplace as well as trying to understand how all this economic, economic stuff fits together as far as inflation is concerned. Wednesday, this another few days, we'll be getting the latest inflation report. Over the last four months, uh, that consumer price index, that's inflation at our level, has increased by 3%. Now, the Fed, as you probably heard, says it's transitory, which is code for we don't think it's going to be here very long. But how long does transitory mean? Well, see, a rise in inflation is what you get when the government implements an unprecedented level of stimulus to support incomes, while coincidentally implementing policies like lockdowns and overly generous unemployment insurance that stifle production. It's what you get when demand is more than supply, and this is exacerbated when the central bank prints excess amounts of new money. So inflation is here, live and in color, and we're not sure, so sure just how transient it is. Here's a for instance. Maersk, which is uh, the Danish firm that is the world's largest container shipping form, firm, you see the they put their the names on the side of the ships in rather big letters. They're not exactly a secret. Anyhow, for the quarter, they posted a 200% increase in second quarter earnings, excuse me, uh, uh, revenues, and a 60% jump in earnings. Uh, as the congestions and bottlenecks continue to drive up shipping rates. See, the container shipping rates, which is pretty much the way everything moves anymore, have skyrocketed as the global economy has come back from the pandemic and commodity demand is recovering. At the same time, there is a shortage of con containers and that's put pressure on supply chains. More recently, the combination of rising retail orders and slower turnaround rates has also driven prices higher. Now, I spoke with a client of ours this past week, an excellent client, and this person has business interests in China and uh, also here in the U.S. Uh, and and here, here's what he had to say. He said, the supply of goods is intriguing in my world. Lead times domestically are getting better, but are still three to four times normal. In Asia, it's a totally different thing. Stuff I, I used to get from there used to take normally 10 to 12 weeks and in some cases are being quoted now with March delivery. Figured that's not <laughs> that's not exactly working down the demand factor. Now the port of Los Angeles slash Long Beach currently has 18 container vessels just floating around out there doing nothing, waiting to be unloaded. The average time they sit there is about five and a half days, and you can imagine the ship owners are just so happy when that happens. 
Now, meanwhile, the cost to ship one can, one 40-foot container from Shanghai to L.A., Shanghai being the primary uh, shipping point for uh, the Chinese markets, it's up six two point. Try it again, Mike. Six point two percent from a month ago, and up. Hold your breath. Five hundred forty-seven percent from the end of January twenty twenty before the bug showed up. Another indicator of that definitely suggests higher inflation pressures bubbling under the surface as we continue to try and get totally reopened. You know. Companies are scrambling to meet some of the strongest growth of consumer spending since the 1950s, as along with this big growth in uh, business purchases of equipment. Yet during this most recent quarter, producers haven't been able to keep up with the tremendous jump in demand. Unfilled orders keep piling up, with the exception of aircraft. These unfilled orders are at the highest on record, and no one knows how the constraints are going to ease. What we've got is material shortages and shipping delays have led to outsized drawdowns in inventories. The value of inventories, that's here in the U.S., shrank by its second worst uh, amount in nearly 12 years. So, as one ramification of that, the government's initial guess of what GDP growth would be missed by a bunch. Now, what it means? Well, suppliers have been unable to keep pace with demand and thus creating significantly faster inflation, hence transitory, perhaps. Firms are racing to restock, but it's hard to do that when you don't know when supply chains are going to retain to some normalcy. Given that they're global in nature, many of the bottlenecks may be more persistent than we'd like. Now, uh, Barclays economist Pooja Serial had this to offer. He said, with order backlogs continuing to pour post-sharp increases, our main takeaway is that domestic factories are still struggling to keep up with very strong demand, unquote. Now, the trade deficit, as we talked, widened to a record in June as the economy continued to drive strong demand for foreign goods. Imports hit a monthly record. That's not a bad thing. Uh, Now, the trade report is yet another example showing how we, consumers and businesses, have stepped up our spending investment as the economy has recovered to its virus size, fueling the demand for imports. Now, we expect the trade deficit to fluctuate from month to month, as it typically does, but generally likely get larger through the year for a few reasons. Chief among them, we, the U.S., is recovering from the pandemic faster than most other countries. That means the demand for imports should continue to be much higher than the demand for exports to the rest of the world. Second, we're running low on inventories for many goods due to this surge in consumer spending, and again, artificially boosted by these government checks. That means we'll continue to see a stronger-than-normal appetite for imports as companies restock their shelves and warehouses. It's true, many of these supply chain issues are going to be resolved, for sure. Some price pressures will ease, but the thought that the real GDP will continue to grow faster than nominal GDP? I don't think so. See, the difference between what's called the nominal GDP and real GDP is the adjustment for inflation. Nominal GDP is figured out using current prices and doesn't require any adjustments for inflation. So with the money supply having risen so rapidly and the ability of the economy to keep up with that growth being diminished by a more burdensome government, stagflationary pressures, that is to say slower growth with higher prices, well, those have kind of been building up. 
and we don't expect those pressures to totally disappear. So while there will be volatility of data in the quarters ahead, the GDP data is exhibiting the seeds of stagflation. We also have the dilemma of producers of products and services for retail raising prices and shrinking the product amounts in their packages. <laughs> I'll bet you've noticed that at the local store. And how quickly, if at all, do you see they'll, that they'll be adjusted, readjusted, if and when the economy starts flowing again? Therein lies the rub with quote-unquote transitory inflation. It tends to be not so transitory once those prices tend to take hold, to coin the phrase. I want to share some thoughts from folks around the country uh, about what they might think about the markets and related topics there too. You know, it's always easier to make predictions uh, than to make money. Uh, that's why a lot of these talking heads, uh, you know, you should ask them just how they actually invest. That'd be open, that interesting commentary. Uh, Canaccord Genuity Analyst Tony Dwyer had a comment this week that I think is pretty accurate. He said, and I'm quoting, the markets are having a hard time making up their mind as investors look for the next catalyst in either direction. He goes on to say the fear over the current variant of the bug and the other side of peak everything has investors on edge while the monetary and fiscal support of the economy coupled with historically strong earnings keep liquidity high, quote unquote. Now those are all short-term issues, okay? This talk about peak everything, well, we've hit the peak of earnings, we've hit the peak of oil production, we've hit the peak of the market. You know, I've been doing this since dirt was invented, and I'll tell you what, I've heard that story so many times, I, it, anyhow, it, it's, everybody has their own thoughts, and that's what makes markets, but if that were the case, the markets wouldn't continue to go up over time, would they? Now, we've had more than half the earnings reports from the S&P now, and profits are on track to grow 90% over last year's second quarter. That's not exactly a reach because, as you recall, last year's second quarter was not so great. So throughout this entire year, however, expectations have been consistently ratcheted higher and we're still beating the higher forecasts. Just a few weeks ago, the um, tea leaf readers on the street were expecting earnings growth of 65%. We're beating that number by 25%. So another way to think of it, 89% of reports have beaten the Wall Street consensus. That's the highest beat rate since they started tracking it more than 25 years ago. Now, the normal beat rate is around 60 to 65%. And you see, and this has always been a case of angst for me, is when these analysts, who are, again, are, you know, <laughs> they're sharp penciling all this stuff and they're making guesses and estimations. And yet, if a company has the nerve to not hit their expectations, the analyst's expectations, these guys knock the pins out from under them. Or if they don't go up as much as they expected, boom, they get beat again. The only way you can do better is to do better than expected. So, you know, uh, they, I sorry, I get all crazy when I talk about this, but the idea is, is that, you know, consider the fundamentals, stay with the numbers, eliminate the editorial comment from the peanut gallery. Now, the third quarter, excuse me, second quarter will likely mark the highest point in earnings growth because of, you know, all this uh, money tsunami that's been behind it. But 
earnings are still expected to grow. Now for the third quarter, the quarter we're in now, the street generally expects earnings to grow by about 29% over last year's third quarter. For the fourth quarter, the growth estimate is about 21%. So the broader trend is pretty dang clear. Things are getting back to normal, but as I said earlier, we still have a long way to go. Uh, Mark Hayfley, he's Chief Investment Officer at UBS. He said, uh, quote, we believe the reopening and recovery trend is on track and continue to see the upside for stocks. We expect the S&P to climb around 46.50 by June next year versus uh, 43.95 currently. Uh, that was next year, by the way, he said. But we see the greatest upside for the cyclical parts of the economy, including energy and financials, unquote. Now, Goldman Sachs, they raised their year-end, this year, year-end target for the S&P to 4,700. That would be about a 7% up from here. And again, in part due to the improving earnings outlook. So, you know, oh, here, uh, Randy Frederick, he's Managing Director of Trading and Derivatives at Chuck Schwab. He said, and again, I'm quoting him, everyone knows that valuations are fairly high. S&P is up nearly 100% since the March low of last year. So the market tends to be a little skittish to any kind of news. I'd say that's a vast understatement. But in any case, my outlook for most of the third quarter has been that I've been expecting the market to be mostly sideways with elevated volatility, unquote. I think he's got a good point there. And there's a, a Ed Yardini, Dr. Ed Yardini, uh, who is a noted economist and uh, market observer. He put out a chart here, and I'd like to show you, but I don't think this microphone has a camera on it. Anyway, um, since 1990 through, well, I think the, th the end of the uh, second quarter, uh, people, it, it, he's tracking bond and stock combined flows into mutual funds. And from that period of time till now, you've seen, let me see here, uh, 4.5, what is this, trillion dollars going into bond funds and about 1.7 trillion going into stock funds. Now, I'm not sure what those folks are using for guidance, but uh, I don't think they're going to be able to walk too well because they've been shooting themselves in the feet here. Uh, this is not a good way to do things, folks. You have an asset that can't increase in value if interest rates are going up, and you're going to be, quote-unquote, locking in rates that are, um, how would I say, below the inflation rate. I don't know, understand exactly that. I'm not saying you have to all be in stocks, but at least consider that you need some stock investment to make your long-term goals. Uh, Terry Sandvin, who is a friend of mine, really, really, uh, he's uh, the Bank Wealth Management for U.S. Bank, and he's our Chief Equity Strategist. And by the way, even uh, he is a pretty smart guy. He says, rising earnings are providing valuation support, rising, rising revenue and earnings, generally restrained inflation, relatively low interest rates, ongoing monetary and fiscal stimulus policies, and medical progress support our outlook for rising stocks in the second half of this year. Now, he doesn't talk like that when you're just talking to him, but, you know, that's his gig. Uh, so, some some data here to, again, reinforce uh, that we're doing okay in the markets and uh, not to get too concerned about what the near-term people are yapping about. 
So over the last 20 years or so, the S&P has produced an average annual return of about 6%. Now, if you had missed just the best 20 days over 20 years, and you had, and for, you know, for whatever reason, you had been convinced you could sell and then reinvest it later, this is according to an, anal an analysis from Chuck Schwab, your return would be 0.1%. Stay in the game. Do not pull the trigger. Steve Hankey, he's professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He said between 1900 and 2017, the average annual return on stocks has been around 11%. Now, I said 6% a minute ago. That was after uh, inflation and taxes. So, uh, that's, <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, up is up. And there are no better assets that have performed over long term here, it, well, most places, I think certainly in the U.S. But even the best stock pickers, the guys that just seem to have their finger on the pulse, they're going to underperform if they can't control their emotions. So it, allowing the hot buttons to get pressed is how people go wrong in investing. I mean, that's, that's it. It's not how smart you are. It's not how much money you have. It's can you control your emotions, good and bad. There's no shortcuts, secrets, get rich queen screams at work. I keep saying this. Don't get caught up in the minutiae. My goodness. You know, if you can't stand the drops, you're also going to miss out on the gains. Steve Leisman, who is one of the um, guys on CNBC, who is actually a coherent thinker, he, his economic survey showed that just 32% of respondents think it's a good time to buy stocks now. I won't ask for a show of hands because uh, I think he might be re, uh, reinforced by this. But this is what the professionals call a contrary indicator. And though it seems like it might be a data point that would argue for caution, it's actually a sign that the bull market may have further to run. The thinking is that low investor sentiment readings mean there's still a large pool of potential future buyers who are still unconvinced of the market's attractiveness. I think you can say that uh, 24-7-365. Now, when investor sentiment is high, on the other hand, most investors have already voted with their money, leaving few converts to the market to take it higher. But here's the thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind as you're making your decisions. This is, this is the trigger question. What's important about money to you? Think about that. What is important about money to you? Being able to answer the question gives you a lens through which to view your financial decisions. Once you've identified that, once you've identified the values that are around that, in other words, what's most important, you're going to have very good information to help you make decisions that match those values. Now, dividend growth, oh boy, I'll tell you, this is why I suggest stocks primarily over bonds for long term. It's probably the most important benefit of a stock income portfolio. It's a built-in hedge against inflation that's not enjoyed by investors in any kind of fixed income. In fact, even the average company in the S&P has been able to grow its dividends by 6% per year over the past 50 years. That's well ahead of the inflation rate of 3.85% in that period. And that's according to Bloomberg Annual Dividend Growth of the S&P and Inflation. I didn't make it up. That growth is a built-in hedge against inflation Again, that not not enjoyed by the bond investors. So you you know this is why you need to uh, 
consider this because you you see the dividends they're not fixed okay that's always the oh well they're not guaranteed that's right they're not and since they're not guaranteed um, there's a little more risk to them isn't it so I think that's it for this week folks I hope you've enjoyed it I hope you benefited from it I thank you very much for listening we'll be back next week hopefully with more good market news this is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Office 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.